2: Hello and welcome to Your Booked. I'm Daisy Buchanan. This week we're on the Kent coast, the occasional ends of Somerset Mourn, Chaucer, Dickens and our lit-loving witch-sharpening guest, Andy Miller. Andy is a professional Anita Bruckner fanboy, the author of Tilting at Windmills, the Kinks Are the Village Green Preservation Society, and he's probably best known for his memoir, The Year of Reading Dangerously, Our 50 Great Books Saved My Life, published by Fourth Estate. In this book, Andy asks why, as a bookseller and publisher, he fell out of love with reading and falls back in by working his way through the literary canon, including Middlemarch, Must and Margarita and The Da Vinci Code. Lots of listeners will recognise his voice from Backlisted, the Beyonce of book podcasts from the publisher Unbound, which he co-presents with John Mitchinson. Andy is to publishing what Sir David Attenborough is to conservation. If we still have books as we know them in a hundred years' time, we will have his energy, intelligence and enthusiasm to thank. As a point of trivia, I first met Andy at a book festival a couple of years ago. I was hungover in a gold jumpsuit eating a bacon sandwich. He warned me that Martin Parr was roaming around with a camera and about to capture me with HP Sauce on my chin. He's an all-round wonderful writer, reader and human being. So I am in the beautifully appointed sitting room of the author Andy Miller, uh, the author of the Year of Reading Dangerously and podcaster, and many of you must listen to Backlisted. Um, Ask a good question. Andy, what do you call this room? Is it a sitting room, a drawing room? A, um, what's the other one? Lounge?
1: Uh, uh, it's a sitting room, isn't it? I I I I haven't got my Mitfords to hand, so I can't <laughs> I- instantly call up the U and non-U terms. Pretty sure
2: lounge is non-U.
1: Um, is it? My, yeah. Okay.
2: My nan and grandpa called it a lounge, and if we use that word at home, my mum would tell us off.
1: It's the city. It's the sitting room. Yes, it's mm-hmm. the sitting room. It, it's uh, it's the room we do the sitting in. So that <laughs> that's uh, that's fine. I've
2: got to say, I think. I mean, this is a lot of books, but it is here. <laughs> I was kind of envisaging, knowing you to be yeah. a big, big reader, I thought we'd be sort of swimming through them, and this looks quite, quite neat and tidy. Um, so um,
1: there are books all over the house. There's a. Well, this is this is the first room you've made it into, right? So, so that's the first thing. And the second thing is the other rooms, which you are not allowed in, according to <laughs> someone who should remain someone close to me, who should remain anonymous, who lives here with me. There are books all over the floor in other rooms in the house. This so, is the most co- under control. So
2: what you're really saying is that you have played the property market to your advantage. And you have many <laughs> yeah.
1: rooms. We have more rooms than you. Many rooms, many
2: houses. So tell me about these books that I'm looking at now. I see... Uh, I see many books. I can see Beyond Black by Hilary Mantel. I see Everyman by Philip Roth. I see The Dice Man by Luke yeah, Reinhardt. Now, I have a feeling I remember you not enjoying The Dice Man. That's
1: it's terrible. Book. Yeah, it's an awful book. Uh, so, OK, so like from the far left there, uh, you can see there that orange spine is The Master and Margarita, Margarita. Margarita by Mikhail Bulgakov. And then if you go across in a straight line, two drops until you get to uh, here, Howard's End by E.M. Forster. Uh, those are, in the order that I read them, uh, the 50 books that I read for my book, The Year of Reading Dangerously, which I actually read these about, in fact, about 10 years ago now. Uh, And these are the actual copies that I read I don't keep them here. It's like a, in a kind of as a museum to myself because I don't normally have cause to present them as though they were artifacts or recreations of me ten years ago when I was reading them. But I keep them. But I keep them in the order uh, that I read them uh, for two reasons. Uh, or keep them on display for two reasons. The first reason is that I'm actually really proud of having read some of these books, and uh, furthermore, they offer quite a broad sweep of types of book. So they look, they do furnish a room. To quote Anthony Pohl, "Books do furnish a room." They do furnish a room. It's quite nice to have them present in the house and have them there. But also, and this is a thing that I find in my life as a writer, I'm always having to say because I write about my actual experiences and things that I do, mm. and uh, I. The character of Andy Miller is based on me, right? The me in the books is based on the actual me. A and the like actual me read, read all those, those books. books. So I might as well, you know, have them there.
2: So this is, you, this is not the little sort of Nintendo Wii version of you. That I you wish it was. Send out.
1: <laughs> that would be so much better. Anyway, yeah. Uh, so that's why, the, that's why those are all there. And what happened was, as you can see, is if we start on the left. Uh, so I bought... Um, I'm standing on the sofa Andrew's now, so now I can point. Uh, so I bought The Master and Margarita at the Albion Bookshop in uh, Broadstairs uh, in Kent. Uh, that It's not there anymore. And then we've got a copy of Middlemarch by George Eliot, and I bought that at Methven's in Canterbury. Methven's in Canterbury isn't there anymore. And then I bought Post Office by Charles Bukowski. I think I bought that at Waterstones in Charing Cross Road, uh, no, Waterstones in no, it was it's Waterstones in Chancross Road, and that's not there anymore. Um, but it's sort of uh, uh, each so one a... of these books was was bought from bookshops which have now vanished. You're a terrible, terrible jinx. <laughs> I think I am. I think <laughs> I am not publishing, Andy. It's you. <laughs> I know, but also they have them in stock. You know, they had. You could go to Broadstairs to a little bookshop, and it had a copy of The Master and Margarita just sitting on the shelf. And it strikes me that that's probably become more difficult
2: there, they... in the
1: last ten years. That that just happened. There's a right? bit
2: that you talk about in your book that um, made me laugh and also horrified me quite deliciously, where you talk about, for your, the purposes of your book, needing to read Moby Dick and having to read Moby Dick. Was it on a Nintendo DS?
1: Yes, so so right. My son, when I was working on when I was my son was little when I was uh, reading these books, and uh, I was staying away from home, and I had forgotten to take my actual copy of Moby Dick with me, and so I needed it uh, uh, in emergency to um, look up a particular passage in Moby Dick, and uh, my son had his DS with him, and. Back then, you could buy a cartridge for the Nintendo DS, which was called the 100 Classic Books that you could read on a DS, right? And it had Moby Dick in it, so we had to go, we had to find a supermarket that sold DS cartridges to to get to get that, so I could then look for scroll through on a DS to try and find a particular passage in Moby Dick. I did actually do that. It sounds like I made that up, and didn't make it up at all. But that was partly again because. i was staying in i was staying on the south coast away from a place with many bookshops just laying your hands on a copy of moby dick if you didn't have brilliant internet access again the world's changed so much in the last 10 or 12 years now you just go to project gutenberg and download it wouldn't you or or you could probably just find it in hypertext i'm sure it's i'm sure there's just a web page with the whole thing on it yeah so you can see we start with the master Margarita and then we work our way through like the sea the sea and the confederacy of dunces 20,000 Streets Under the Sky, Moby Dick, Anna Karenina. And it was about the point of Anna Karenina, which is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10. the 11th book, that I thought, wow, I think I'm going to write about this. So I didn't start it as a oh. to write about. I started it because I felt that I had totally worn out my enthusiasm for reading and that what I needed to do was stop. Uh, pretending that I read all those books and actually read them. And you know what, it really worked. The cumulative effect of reading all those brilliant books one after another and finishing them, this, I'm sure this is a subject to which we will return, and finishing them and making them... I didn't love all of them. Mm. I didn't, it wasn't the case that I read all of them and thought, oh, my God, it's one amazing... Some I struggled with, some I thought were amazing, some I didn't like. But just the sense of getting back into the rhythm of reading every day really, really had a profound effect on me. I'm still sort of working through that now, I suppose.
2: At what point did you, as someone who reads and also enjoys and absorbs a lot of culture, did you feel confident enough in your taste and in who you were to be able to read a book or even you know, see a film or a play or hear music and think, I do not like that, I don't think this is good?
1: I don't think you ever... Do you ever get over that? I don't. I, I'm always. I'm always. It de- it depends on what the book or record or film is, right? Mm. So, if, for instance, I mean, I say this in a in the Year of Reading Dangerously. I've said it a lot, but I really believe it. Let's take the example of Middlemarch mm. up there. If you read Middlemarch and you don't like Middlemarch, that isn't Middlemarch's fault. That's your fault. You're always right. blaming Middlemarch. No, 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 but but what I mean I've is never read Middlemarch. But but you've never read it.
2: I've never read it. Can uh, I borrow yours? <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, no, I never lend books. Come on, you know that. You must have worked that out. Look, there's no broken spines there.
2: They are on very good nick. Are you a respecter <laughs> of books? You yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't box
1: don't things. I find this a really interesting thing. I've noticed this like on Twitter. People are always going, "Ah, oh, if you really love a book then you've got to break its spine and Dunk it in the bath and really throw it across the room. I'm really concerned
2: about what these people are like in their romantic relationships.
1: <laughs> they just, I just think, well, there are other ways that you can like reading books, and that involves not hurting them, <laughs> not so, bru- not bruising them. But or or... do not you
2: ever? Do you never read in the bath? Do you read in a quite a sort of an upright together? Because I, as a reader, i I would like to take better care of books than I do because I'm sort of, you know, I'll be making some. Food, you're cooking a meal and reading something, and oh, I, I, my lovely new book is now covered in soy sauce and olive oil, or you don't, you're very careful about where I, you are.
1: I, you know what? I read in non oil <laughs> <laughs> based areas. I tend to, I, start I tend doing to, that. I do read, so I read sitting in chairs, standing up, uh, uh, or in bed, well, and walking down the road. But I don't read in the bath.
2: With a, a physical book, walking down the road. Yeah. I I would like to see you do that.
1: <laughs> we can do that. We can. This can be that can be the peak of this podcast. You is you chase me down the street while I'll,
2: I. I'll create a uh, yeah.
1: That.
2: A verbal picture.
1: Have you have you like, have uh you read the Dice Man?
2: I have not read the Dice Man. You put me off. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Did I? Dude, I'm sorry, no, sorry but to Luke me, Reinhardt if he hears about, this.
2: Because I know you. This is in uh, in the year reading dangerously, but can you yeah. talk about what it was like to? At what point you decided that you didn't like, it and when the the crossing over from I don't like this to maybe this isn't good, or or when you felt that it was okay to have a, a negative reaction to it.
1: My feeling is that uh, uh, I've already mentioned this, but my, I came to the conclusion that as long as I finished something. Mm. I was then allowed to say what I thought. And you asked me about when I felt confident enough to do that. I think I I think you can say what you think as long as you put the hours in, regardless of whether you feel confident or not. That's not the issue. I think the issue is that because we live now in a world where you're being encouraged to mm. broadcast your opinions, not us necessarily, mm. but everyone yeah. on social media or or, or on blogs or or whatever that that in order to it's good to know what you're talking about that is how you distinguish yourself from people who don't know what they're talking about and if you haven't finished reading the book you you don't know what you're talking about that is that's you 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 can have a response based on what you read but that's what, about you that's not about the book in order to make it about the book you've got to finish the book but i mean nobody likes me this is this is the and this is the i'm not a very inspiring figure daisy because because i think the drift is towards saying oh do what you want don't just read 30 pages chuck the book across the room
2: put it in p- a bar. P- p-
1: put, put, it and put, to put one star it. on goodreads and say oh you know george eliot failed because i didn't like <laughs> this book well, that seems wrong. And that seems like consumerism has gone mad, doesn't it? It basically is in the entitled consumer is going, I demand to be in the right. I demand to have the whip hand.
2: I, so, I agree. Um, but I was curious about whether there are any books you have finished and genuinely felt confused by and thought, I couldn't tell you if I like that or not. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, many, of course, that's the flip side. I always try and be completely honest in my response to uh, books, or films, or music, and a lot of the time, uh, you need to let things settle before you decide then what you're going to say about them. I, for instance, um, quite early on, *The Sea, the Sea* by Iris Murdoch. I got about it's about four hundred page book. I reckon I got about two hundred and fifty pages in. I genuinely didn't know what to make of it. Which I quite liked. I I don't Mm. have a problem with that. I didn't feel someone was getting one over on me. Mm. But I just thought, I have no... What means do I have of locating this in the tradition of other things that I've read?
2: I think it's good to have in this era of loving things and hating things to feel challenged by the nuances of something and to feel uncertain and shifting.
1: Yeah, and also what you're saying is absolutely right. And, And having confidence is great. Backing confidence up with a bit of um, legwork is also mm. really great. So I tend to feel... Uh, also, I tended to feel like, like for instance, this book here, uh, 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. That is a lot of people's favourite books. Certainly people of a certain age. If you were around in the 80s, that was a very important book.
2: Maybe this isn't a fair thing to say, I but I've always... It. I really... I, I liked it, but I read it when I was a teenager and I really wanted to like it. And I, I think I really was like, oh, it's a bit, I feel like it's very hard work, but I'm missing something. I will keep going. But it seems like a bit of a, a boy's book. It's a book you put on a dating profile.
1: Do you think it's a boy's book? I'm a boy. <laughs> Gender is another thing we're going to return to. Gender and reading. What a fascinating topic. Um, but I, there
2: are certain books where, and it might be, you know, a, boy, a sensitive boy's book who'd put it on his dating profile because he doesn't want to say, <laughs> "I love look, Angie McNabb look, on the rampage." Yeah, look, look,
1: look, look. So actually, Gabriel Garcia Marquez in my sick library lives next to The Dice Man, lives next to Luke Reinhart. Okay, and look on the cover of The Dice Man, the quote is from novelist of the century, loaded. <laughs> So that is so the sensitive boy's choice is leading is next to the insensitive boy's choice, right? Uh, I feel
2: like there should be you know, see pages ninety six and two hundred and thirteen for some raunch.
1: Oh, also, you know what you notice about the books in this room? Is, I
2: should say I don't know where the raunch is. I've not read it. I will.
1: They're all doubled <laughs> up, right? So if I like, if I pull those out, there's a Ooh. load more books be- behind there. May
2: I come up on the safer? You a may. List? You right. may
1: indeed. So you can see what's hiding behind there.
2: Oh, um, so these are all lots of music books, which is interesting. We have Never Break the Chain, which is about Fleetwood Mac. It is. Um, rip It Up and Start Again by Simon Reynolds. We, we think I have this book in my... I say I have this book, I think my husband has this book. We've yeah, that's it a great point. book. Um, what do you think that loving music has... What impact has that had on your... Your love of reading or perhaps your occasional hate or frustration with reading.
1: Uh, yeah, well, I, so I'm 50 and I was fortunate enough to grow up in the 1980s when uh, pop stars read books. And it was there was peer pressure on musicians to talk about the books that they read. So, for instance, my favourite novel that I've ever read, which is There, is which is Absolute, Absolute Beginners, Beginners by Colin McInnes, I know about that book because Paul Weller used to talk about it a lot in interviews in the early 1980s.
2: So is this copy, is that the, the one you had yes. in your boyhood? Yes. When you were when
1: it you is. A boy, I so. read that uh, on, um, during a family holiday in Scotland and I finished it on the deck of a Caledonian McBrain ferry heading back from, I want to say, uh, from somewhere like Isla or Jura to Oban. And uh, I couldn't... These, these phrases that we use all the time, right? I couldn't put it down. I couldn't put it down. It's the most exciting. Uh, that book, actually, I hate the phrase. The phrase I really dislike, that book's changing your life. Because m- m- when people say that, what they mostly mean is books they really like, which is mm. fine. That book changed my life. So absolutely, beginners' by calling changed are my you life. The fifteen,
2: age. you're fifteen, and a fan of the jam?
1: Fan of the jam, absolutely.
2: And do you? Did you, Was there any kind of family sense of like what you were reading? I was like, oh, that book looks a bit adult or old. Oh, Let's No, have my, mum it. Dad, my mum and dad. My mum
1: and dad were really great. Actually, we didn't have loads of books in the house, and uh, but we went to the library a lot. We went to the library every week, and. You know, I was a really a good reader, so I used to get through three books a week. Basically, take them back to the library, and my parents were really brilliant about letting me read whatever I wanted. Uh, The only thing they didn't—my mum wouldn't let me get have looking in the house. Uh, the ITV. <laughs> People will be listening to this who don't know what looking is incredibly. It was the it was T V Times for kids. And so my mum didn't really like that. But other than that, they let me read Marvel Comics and they let me read uh rubbish old sci-fi or good and good sci-fi. And so they never really raised an eyebrow when I moved into reading sort of more more adult books. I think Graeme Green I think the Graham Greene was probably the first author that I was my First big sort of adolescent crush, uh, and then I did, and then I did behave like a, a boy, and I read <laughs> everything by Graham Greene. You know, I did. I read stuff in sets.
2: You became a completist.
1: Very much, yeah. I've got that gene, definitely. So
2: what was the first Graham green you read, and can you remember? Brighton Rock. Was there any detail in there or something that happened to me? like, oh, this is a proper,
1: I, this is a book book? Uh, yeah, I tell you what, I found it totally exhilarating that everyone in it was so miserable, <laughs> because because I too was miserable, and yet I didn't often see it. Uh, reflected in actually funny it's funny enough in children's books i did tend to like i'm talking with the benefit of hindsight if i look at the books that i liked as a kid for instance the moomin books mm. or uh, uh uh peanuts i yes. love peanuts we'll talk about peanuts um they're very melancholy mm. and and to me it seemed really uh, uh those were the books i liked. those are the books that that allowed that allowed children to feel sorry for themselves and i you know I wasn't very. I felt very sorry for myself quite a lot of the time. So, um, so, so yeah. So when I got to Graham Greene, also I really liked the um, the general misanthropic. Uh, see, if if there's a type of writing or performer that I like, it tends to be the the miserable but funny people, right? So, uh, E. Or, Stuart Lee, Philip Larkin. I would have said Morrissey once upon oh, a time, but we've... been contentious oh, It's gone now. off the <laughs> spoil <been> somewhat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> basically. Yeah, I like all the crypto-fascists, it turns out. And Michelle Welbert. I really love Michelle Welbert. Another, you know, another misanthrope. But I find it very funny. Bruckner. Actually, Bruckner in her own way. I was just going to say, you know.
2: both big fans of Anita Bruckner, and I think very funny, very dry, but also... Her, her heroines and her protagonists not laugh a minute. Glad to be alive, isn't this fun?
1: When we, if we get a chance later on, we're going to read out the opening paragraph of Anita Brookner's first novel because it is, I've realised that it's the greatest opening paragraph of any novel and it's, the, it's her first novel and she didn't write any warm-ups and she didn't write any short stories. She got to the age of about 50, that's right, isn't it? And she had a summer holiday... Uh, from the Courtauld Institute, and rather than go on holiday, which is not what she wanted to do, she stayed in for six weeks and wrote a novel from scratch. Yes, published my... it, and it's a masterpiece.
2: Party. It's like, Oh, piano! I used to play the piano, and just does Flight of the Bumblebee. Yeah.
1: Can you do? There's a piano. There's a piano behind you. Please, please. Uh...
2: I, I can, but I don't want to embarrass anyone.
1: <laughs> yeah. um, so. Uh,
2: I do want to say as well, for the record, because this is your book and we're talking about reading habits and all of their their glory and shame. Not that there's there's no such thing as a guilty pleasure. I'm Catholic, all of my pleasures are guilty. Um, I did pull back the um, the year of reading dangerously books, and I did find the
1: Da Vinci Code. Well, that's, that's because, because that part, it's in the year of be? reading dangerously. <laughs> it's that's not on display. That's,
2: I. C- the shame I can't remember what you how you found it um in okay
1: so book. the the original subtitle of <laughs> I don't know if I've ever said this on the record oh, it's, it's mad now so the whole time I was writing that book it took me seven years to write that book it was a long drawn out difficult process the whole time I was working on it uh it was called the year of reading dangerously subtitle 50 great books and two by Dan Brown uh, yes, right. I think OK, that's so there. that was an and, but then my agent said, oh, you can't, you can't use that as a subtitle. Uh, but they were wrong, not that they'll ever listen to this, uh, but they were wrong, and that's what we should have called it. So what in the book, I do a comparative study of Moby Dick and The Da Vinci Code, and what I do is I try and look for similarities between the two texts, and I find that there are quite a few. I'm, what, what I find fascinating about Dan Brown is that... Um, he is tremendously successful and people derive huge pleasure from his books. And that is excellent. Mm. Uh, but he's not very good at writing. Unlike, say, Lee Child, who is very successful and people derive a lot of pleasure from his books, he, who is good at writing, Dan Brown isn't so good at writing in terms of forming nice sentences, right? Now, I know that sounds contentious or jealous, but I'm not jealous of Dan Brown, right? I'm just coming at it from a position, (laughs) or a professional expertise, let's call it, whereby (laughs) I've spent a lifetime reading, writing, editing, selling books, and I read The Da Vinci Code, and what happened was I read it just after I read Moby Dick, and uh, Moby Dick, I read, it took me weeks, it was really hard, I sort of, I got to the end of it, I thought, oh... Oh that was really difficult uh, but it was a masterpiece whereas I read the Da Vinci Code in about 12 hours flat and I, I thought wow wow I really need to read something better than the Da Vinci Code because <laughs> it's because it's because it's not that it's I have no problem I was making this point no problem at all with popular entertainment I love it escapism fantastic it's just it's not you know it's just kind of <laughs>
2: it's not perhaps something that people can derive their nourishment from. I mean, I guess, because I, I suppose... I don't know, I
1: don't know. It's I just, know
2: so I, many but super, then... super snobs that I always want to sort of speak... Like, my goodness, um, Dan Brown does not need me to be like, go easy on it. You know, he's he's having yeah. a lovely time. He is fine. But I think it's... I'm very interested in the way that I... I don't know if you'd relate to this or not, but as someone who was um, sort of bookish and nerdy and bullied and, like, books are all, all I had, I think... I have in the past, for sure, been guilty of a kind of literary snobbishness where I, I sort of, I hope I'm not this way now, but there was a time when I used to want to put the barriers up and be like, no, 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 the, the complicated and difficult yeah. things, they are the best, and you can't say you're a reader and you can't say you're passionate if you're reading this thing you can buy in a supermarket, which now I think is nonsense. My goodness, as a writer, I would um, I would cut off my hands yeah, to but, be in a supermarket. But, <laughs>
1: you know what, I agree with that. I agree with that 100%, but what I also feel as a reader, someone who reads a lot and reads all sorts of different things is it is okay to say some things are better than other things. You know, it's because some things are better than other things.
2: Do you think this is my millennial... No, 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 everyone gets a prize. <laughs> yes, <laughs> in.
1: I do. I, I used to... Funnily enough, I used to take a very similar position to you on this. What I'm trying to say about Dan Brown is I'm not even... I have no problem with people enjoying books from supermarkets. I have no problem with people enjoying A-format blockbuster Bonk Buster, Misery Memoir, whatever you want, whatever floats your boat, but when it comes down to it, some things are better than other things, right, and what you're, the flip side of the position you've got is that people are scared to say, like you sent me an email before we did this, that said... Oh, we don't want people to we don't want we don't need to go look on the shelf and you go there's that's where I keep my Proust. You know what? We're going to go somewhere and I'm going to say that's where I keep my Proust. <laughs> why should I why should I cringe away from being enjoying reading stuff that's good?
2: So, say <coughs> say you've got someone who doesn't really read very much. Yeah. Is a bit nervous about reading read a Dan Brown on holiday and I was like oh this is really good where do I go from here what direction would you point them in that has those perhaps that sense of pace and excitement but is a little bit more nourishing and it is better but will keep a new reader reading.
1: That's a really good question well I suppose I would say Lee Child um I uh was at a book festival with uh Rick Gakowski who is a writer and rare book dealer and uh He uh, was also the chair of the Book of Judges about five or six years ago. And uh, so I said to him, well, what are you reading at the moment? What's good? And he went, Lee Child. And I went, which one? And he went, doesn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) They're all the same. They're all brilliant. Even
0: on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
2: We'll be back to Andy soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week, a book I loved so much that paying the cover price alone seems faintly criminal. This week, I've chosen the book Santa Brought Me, Gabrielle Moss's Paperback Crush, the totally radical history of 80s and 90s teen fiction. This is a breakneck, giddy, and fillingly thorough book about a genre that is frequently dismissed, even though it was a formative part of the lives of the most addicted readers I know. I was overjoyed to discover The Sitters Club and Sweet Valley High are covered comprehensively, thrilled to find forgotten favourites like Paula Daisinger, and equally spooked and compelled to revisit point horror. It was published by Quirk Books at the end of October. If you've ever read something with a coloured sticker on the spine indicating that someone else thought it was slightly too old for you, you will adore this, I promise. Now, back to Andy. You are undoubtedly a prolific reader and someone who's always reading. And I think a lot of what you read is... Dictated sounds like a strong word, but it's informed by you know, the work you do and what yeah. you have to be on top of. Do you ever just feel overwhelmed by the volume of books that are in the world?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah, totally. It, I sort of... Um, so, you know, um, on Twitter, every, at the end of every month, I post a picture of the pile of books that I've been reading. And that has been a really fascinating experience because people's... All it is is a photograph and I usually say, these are the books that I read this month, and my favourite was... Mm. And it's a fairly... For me, it's a fairly... It's just like a public diary, really. It's a fairly mm-hmm. vanilla sort of thing to do. People's responses to it. It's like holding up a mirror to readers. People's responses to it are totally fascinating. Uh, some people go, oh, it's really inspiring. Uh, some people go, why, do you, why have you done that? It's made me feel bad. And uh, a lot of people say, how do you read so much? And I, every month when somebody asks me, and they always ask me, I try and think of a different thing to say. Um, because a lot of the time they mean, why do you read so much? Um, do you not know
2: ever say, because I'm reading to your mum?
1: <laughs> <laughs> makes, makes note for uh, for, next, uh, for end of month tweets. Because um, <laughs> I'm reading to your mum. It's pretty good. I sort of feel, well, why do you read so much? Because the clock is ticking. You know, I've got like, I reckon I've got 20 years left of good reading in me before my sight fails and my faculties begin to dwindle. And so, we
2: have the wellness industry and we'll have bionic (laughs) eyes and it'll be fine. (laughs) Just have I, some
1: green juice and get new eyes. All good. But I, but I, I ended up feeling really strongly. One of the things that, uh, as a result of doing the reading for the year, of reading dangerously, was you can, you can read, you can read or not read. But mm. when it comes down to it, if you're going to read those books, you've got to, you've got to read them. This sounds like such a banal thing to say, but actually, it's totally true. The difference between having having read something and mm. reading something is reading it.
2: That maybe the your fear of not reading has to be bigger than your fear of reading.
1: I. F- I find the more I read and the the further out of my comfort zone that I go in my reading, the bigger my comfort zone grows. That I find different things that I find I like for reasons I might not have expected that I like, uh, and that then informs the next book that I read. So um, you're right uh, that I read a lot and I do feel slightly overwhelmed by it sometimes. But on the other hand, you know we're tremendously lucky me and John, to be doing backlisted. We're, it's sort of giving, giving us an excuse to investigate authors, 26 authors a year and their backlists, that, that we wouldn't... That I'm not saying we wouldn't read, but we have no urgent need to read, and a lot of the time that just means you, don't, you never get round to it, and you're going to miss out on things that perhaps are going to be, uh, become your favourite books.
2: I think perhaps it is a, a discipline, like all of the things that bring you joy there's got to be you've got to bring some effort to it, and I think this maybe goes back to your point about um quote unquote difficult books or you know yeah. books that are challenging that the more the more you get in, the more you get out to be very base about it yeah
1: well, the thing is right i read I talk about this a lot I read fifty pages a day every day
2: when, when? if i can I normally Morning, get normally afternoon. before I start
1: work, so I tend to wake up quite early so um before the house is awake I tend to read for an hour or an hour and a half and then uh, I get my son off to school and uh, then I get down to work about half, seven, eight o'clock. But I've already done some reading, you know. Mm. I've already uh, exercised that muscle.
2: Do you feel sort of generally, you know, mentally better for it and yeah, calmer? I try really hard to read for an hour in the morning instead of reaching for my phone. I don't always succeed at this, but yeah, really, really here, notice...
1: And it makes a massive difference just concentrating on one thing mm. for, say, 90 minutes rather than hopping about trying to, you know, it's just really, really helpful. Um, um, and that 50 pages a day thing, once you get into the rhythm of it, that really, really works. It, it, it's really helpful with, with longer books or more challenging books mm. because, you know, I, you know that phrase, the book didn't grab me? Well, I, I sort of think that it's uh, that's never going to work, is it? It's up to you to grab yeah. the book, right? And you're right, Daisy. It's what you... It, again, this is sort of... This sounds like tough love, doesn't it? But to some extent, you've got to put something in to get something back. Mm. And... Uh, you don't have to for all books. All Some books are going to carry you along and you're going to find them um, easy and straightforwardly enjoyable. But there's more than one way to enjoy a book, right? Mm. Just there's more than one type of dancing. There's, you, don't go, you don't want to only watch Star Wars every time you go to the cinema. There's different types of film and different types sometimes of experience, you want to
2: right? take away, sometimes you'll go to um, yeah. somewhere nice.
1: <laughs> what you want is a balanced diet. <laughs> but we such only such talk such about books it. in those terms. We uh, books have mm. this weird thing because of people's status anxiety around them or the mm. cultural baggage that comes with them. Mm. It sounds like what I'm recommending is only roughage. That's not what I mean. <laughs> what I mean is you just got to. The more you balance it out, the wider you throw the net, the more likely it is you'll enjoy more of what mm. you read. I think reading is a skill as well. Yeah. You know, and the more you read, the better you get at it. But
2: hopefully, it's, it's not—it is a skill because it's not something you're born with. That it is democratic. That if yeah. all you need is to go in with enthusiasm and a, a yeah. commitment to, to make it work. You don't have to be, you know, necessarily predisposed to academia
1: or or anything yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. I was—were you good at reading at school?
2: I was, but like I said, um, bullied, no friends, a lot of free time.
1: See, I was see, I was good at reading at school. It's the only thing that I've ever been naturally good at. And can I say that you had the great advantage though, uh, if you were good at reading at school, in that you are a girl, whereas as a boy, I was the only boy who was good at reading, right? And I used the, the at primary school. What used to happen was they put you in the top readers group, and all the other readers were girls, and they they were really mean. Oh, <laughs> they I'm very were sorry. really no no they were really mean. So so that reading as a as a solitary occupation <laughs> for a boy. I mean the thing is I think you read a lot of um, books about reading the one thing that they have in common is they've all been written by people who will say, <laughs> unreasonably, I was a solitary child <laughs> who, who didn't have many friends and enjoyed, you know, the company of books because books could make sense of the world where other people couldn't. I think that's one of the really fantastic uh, and enjoyable things about, funnily enough, the last 10 years or so with, like, social media and Twitter and whatever, I do feel like that's the first time ever that there is, for all its many faults, that there is a sort of democratic means of talking about books and f- connecting with people who feel the same way about books as you do and about reading as you do.
2: And when you do have that excitement and that real urge uh, to just press something into people's hands, and I think, you know, if I was richer and madder, I'd be down Speaker's Corner with 50 copies in the back. i take <laughs> it, take
1: it! Don't you, think, don't you think... So I think the best thing about Twitter is the book recommendation. Mm. Because... Because I was thinking about this. I think the thing is so fantastic, certainly back when it was 140 characters. Mm. Yeah, and it, in a sense, all you had space to say was, I really love this or I didn't really love it.
2: It's quite aesthetic blurbing, isn't And
1: it? there wasn't an exchange of kind of status. Mm. It, it, not really. You could just go... And the number of book recommendations that I've had via Twitter, which have turned out to be fantastic or introduced me to authors that I really like, far more than, say, the books' pages of newspapers or books that friends might give you. Mm. The thing about books given to you by friends is they tend to be based on their judgment of the things they think you like. And therefore, when you read that book, you're having to go back with... I always find those quite pressured Mm. things. If someone presses a book into my... If you gave me a book now, Mm. because we've met, that would be more difficult, yeah. <laughs> because what? because I I'd be thinking, oh, I don't want to offend. What if I don't like has, this? I don't has want to anyone offend ever those.
2: given you a book that offended you? Have you ever thought, really? They thought I'd like that.
1: Yes, but I cannot say what it is. Oh. I'm really sorry. I'll tell you when the mic's off. I can tell you what it is. But uh, mostly no. <laughs> what's the mostly most no. Book you know, the worst no. The beginning. worst thing is not that. The worst thing is when you're given a book and you think oh, it's all right. It's, be- it's almost better to go back and go, why did you give me that? It was awful. Or, God, I absolutely love that. Thank you so much. But if you read it, and the truth of it is, most books that we read, we don't think are amazing mm. or be awful. We Most things that we read, they're fine. You know, it was all right. Actually, that's the- that's sort of damning it with faint praise as a return of a gift, isn't it? So you went. did you read that book I got you? Yeah, it's fine. And even though that might be the truth, you know, you can't...
2: I suppose you are absolutely in both worlds because you do read so much but also as a writer you know what it's like to sit down for something every day for months or years and it be your book that you're writing I've always got that in my mind when I read something but I mean very occasionally I read something like, mm, and what did you do with the rest of the hour but um,
1: I remember when I was a, bo- I was a bookseller a in the 90s and I remember going to a talk given by uh, one of the heads of publishing at Puffin Books and when it got to questions, the first two or three questions were like booksellers or other members of the public going, why did you publish that book? It wasn't very good. Or, I read this and I, I, it wasn't good. Why, did, why, why, have you done, why have you put this out there? And she said, she slightly lost her temper and said something I've never forgot. She went, no, you don't understand. Nobody writes or publishes a book because they think it's bad. You you are attributing bad faith to people where none exists. Everyone, when they sit down to write, does so in good faith that they are about to do their best. And the book has been brought to you equally by the publisher who wants you to read it. They don't want you not to read it. They may make bad decisions. They may get it wrong. Or they may have targeted it accidentally at a group of people who are in fact less likely to enjoy mm. it but nobody's sitting around going we got that piece of old crap away <laughs> it doesn't work like that and so as a writer i always think <laughs> I, as a writer i always <laughs> it's true you know, I like the cowboy publishers yeah, publishers get you know but pu- the Just thing is know, having been a, a get out, get out. having been a publisher the publishers uh, you know are and to quote Douglas Adams, "Fraught with interest," <laughs> the subject of publishing is fraught with interest. But actually, publishers get blamed for a lot of stuff, which is as much the fault of, say, the editors of the books' pages, or the literary agents, or the public. You know, the mm. public's appetite for the books they want to read. You know, publishing is a business, and a lot of the time, the publisher is seeking to give their mm. customer what they want
0: think. Should we, uh,
1: we, we, we go would to you like the, to see um, the, yeah, no, very the like shed? Yeah. I like the shed. So, sh- so uh...
2: My poor mother is constantly buying. She can't um walk past a charity shop without coming out with five books and she she loves if she she keeps and um, finds a proof, she gets incredibly excited. I remember what she found in Muriel's smartphone Um God was it? Oh, Quite wow. a new one. Might be in Memento Mori. Oh, it's lovely in here. Sorry, I should take my um. She's off again. We are now in Andy Miller's shed. Is a- <laughs> this is where the magic happens? <laughs> <laughs> There's a waterbed. All the furniture has goldfish swimming around it in does. it. It um, does. No, it's uh, very cosy.
1: What can you describe? Would you want to? De- shall I describe what's in here? So basically, um, I've got a desk and uh, my m- some m- lots of music and my guitar and an amp. And uh, a bottle of mezcal, uh, and a Hancock's half-hour board game, and then books and books and books, as you can see. Now, so I will show you. Right, everything left of here, Mm. I haven't read those. So
2: this is this This is is the
1: TBR. So
2: the TBR is one, two, three, four, five, six, six shelves and about ten little piles. I'm not really doubled up. Yeah,
1: and then everything, everything. In, from this direction uh, to the end, uh, I've read most of those. I haven't read everything, but they tend to be uh, things that I've been reading or things that we've done for backlisted. These piles on the floor here, these are things that I've probably, all, probably read all of these this year. Um, so they tend to be, as you can see, blocks of... Uh, but I don't... Having worked in a bookshop, I can never have books by, in alphabetical order. You but have... you can see I've got them by author. In, in clumps
2: ah. i could do something really obnoxious you might not want to do it but i have to grab a book off the shelf how yeah. would you sell it to me i'm gonna probably because this is a book i do should i buy this book mom darling 99 glimpses of princess
1: margaret okay, so That's first of all you wouldn't say that what the thing that you'd say is, is have you read bit? this ah. is it good now <laughs> that is two separate <laughs> questions <laughs> If I told the truth about that book, it would be, yes, I have read it, and yes, it is good. Not only is it good, it is fantastic. But a lot of the time, what the customer means when they say, have you read this, is it good, as they wave a Joanna Trollope at you, is I, Andy Miller, would never read a Joanna Trollope, perhaps incorrectly, Perhaps I should change my mind about that. Is it good? I don't know. You don't want me to say that. What you want me to say is yes (laughs) to both. Yes, I have read it. Yes, it's good. Have you read this?
2: I have read it and I loved it. I'm thinking about getting you to read a bit out. I don't know if that would be... Yes, Mom Darling by
1: Craig Brown, which is a sort of... biography of princess margaret but sort of a deconstruction of the idea of a biography of princess margaret it's also it must be said uh incredibly funny because craig brown uh, can turn a comic sentence better than almost anybody else in prose terms i think and uh, uh so that came out when did that came out come out well, this time and last you know, year yeah. and it's and been you know, a really big bestseller i'm happy to say I although a lot of baffled reviews on amazon
2: I'm not sure, I suppose, because people who like books about the royal family are not necessarily going to love this. Um, but it's, it's the detail, isn't it? The economy of the human. That's not economic, as in there's not very much of it spread about. but it's just every... The, the gag rate is constant, and nothing is wasted, I think, in the future. He's got
1: such a good eye. So, uh, yes. So I think you should buy that, even though you've already read it.
2: It's so good, I'll buy another. All right,
1: excellent. I've done have my a job. Have lending
2: copy. Uh, I did want to ask you about whether you ever buy rare books or if you've ever spent a lot of money on a particular book because you love it so much and you wanted to have the special yes. copy. Yes,
1: there it is.
2: <gasps> so I've got that copy of Look At Me. It was a present from producer Dale.
1: Uh, that's, we both own first editions of Look At Me by Anita Bruckner, which are, is a book that I read probably about two years ago and I think is probably my favourite book that I've read in the last 10 years. And uh, um, it was the third or fourth Bruckner that I read in quick succession. And Anyone who's listened to Batlisted will know that I go on and on and on about Anita Bruckner and how much I like Anita Bruckner. So I bought that because as a first edition because I thought, well, I absolutely love that book. I've got another. I bought this as well. Hang on. So hiding away here. Here's a first edition of tigers are better looking by jean reese which is oh, a book that of cover
2: sh- is fabulous can you describe it a bit? yes to...
1: it's a it's a, a a lady looking slightly distracted staring out of a window uh, jean reese's this book was this book was published in 1968 after the success of wide sargasso sea and um in fact uh The stories in it, she'd been trying to sell this volume of stories for at least ten years before the success of Wise Sargasso Sea, and nobody would publish her. And um, I won't recap the sad story of Jean Reese's life, but Tigers Are Better Looking contains one, two, three, four, eight short stories. Um, I think it's probably my favourite collection of short stories by anybody. I think it's an incredible book. And discovering Jeanre actually this is what 's so interesting you see I mean, I sort of discovered Jean Reese her thirties novels and Bruckner in the last ten years, and I think all my all the writers who have most uh, affected me or or I consider to be the the most enjoyable books that i 've read in the last ten years they 've all been female they 're all it 's all writing by women. You can see here there 's a shelf here of Novels and books of short stories by Elizabeth Taylor, uh, not the actress. And also over there, Sylvia Townsend Warner, there's a novel here called The Corner That Held Them, which is um, set in the 1400s in a nunnery, which I think is the best historical novel I've ever read, The Corner That Held Them. Uh, by Sylvia Townsend Warner.
2: These Virago's are
1: gorgeous. And uh, if I see old Virago editions, then I buy those because I really love that look. But I'm really... It goes back to what I was saying earlier about reading outside your comfort zone. And it seems such a straightforward thing, but actually, Anita Bruckner is a fascinating example of it. You know, there is no question that Anita Bruckner was not published in such a way that would... Attract male readers. Mm. She's very much pitched at a female constituency. That is who her publisher thought was most likely to buy her books. Mm. As a result of which, you know, I had read Hotel du Lac many years ago. But she's not. She's. She's. It's ludicrous to think that she wrote only for women. Mm. Of course she didn't. And. One of the great heartening things about doing Batlisted and certainly championing a writer like Anita Bruckner on Batlisted is the number of men who have felt that they is not that they need permission, but you know what I'm saying, that they can they can investigate writers like Anita Bruckner, who perhaps they wouldn't they wouldn't, you know, pick up in a bookshop. Like there's another one down here. When um when Lucy Mangan came on, she chose the novels of a writer called Nora Loft. And I'm just going to show you what Nora Loft's books look like, right? And you will record your reaction.
2: Wow, I love it! It's it seems super, super seventies, but
1: how, just... imagine how I felt sitting on the train reading that, right? It is. I mean, there's a, the a girl most in the front who looks like cover. she might
2: maybe have sex with the dragon later. Yeah,
1: she doesn't. <laughs> In fact, Nora Lofts is, is a fantastically gritty writer who's not sentimental, like that cover would suggest. Who doesn't write in a particularly female way, as that cover, the cover would cover suggest. Of it,
2: that we're going to take yeah. the picture. That it's very, it's borderline Mills and Booney, I'd say yeah. um, gothic script, um, beautiful um, young woman in a sort of princessy headdress, um, long flowing velvet gown, looking sad and pensive. She's doing a sort of Katie Price, Jordan blowing bubbles and staring at the sunset fest. Bloody hell!
1: <laughs> right, now...
2: But there's ringlets!
1: The, the, I guess the point I want to make is it's always a lesson to me that you can't judge a book by the cover. Funny that, isn't it? In fact, but, 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 but we just do, but mm. we do. We as people, we all do that. You look, Daisy, look. That's where I keep my proofs. <laughs> And, Actually, where, and where do I keep them? What are they next to?
2: Uh, they are next to the Peanuts. Charles
1: so Schultz. Marcel um, Proust and Charles M. Schultz, the two greatest writers, two of the greatest writers there have ever been, live next to one another on the shelf.
2: I'm very close uh, behind uh, middle, Also... Right
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he's beneath them. You see, he's literally beneath but,
2: them. But yeah. you're getting up there. You're getting up to yeah. the but i um the the Proust, i can't quite see i need to might need to go yes. over there. but the priest the despite they look quite cakey is that deliberate that's a really
1: beautiful shot yes it's uh, somebody said actually it's uh, they're not so much Madeleine as, as Battenberg. Backenberg. yeah uh, so that's a 90s edition that was published in the mid 90s vintage uh, paperbacks of was Proust. it you
2: who said on a backlist that everybody talks about the Madeleines because it's quite near the beginning
1: yes in fact uh i read the final volume time regained last month and uh, that is one of the great reading experiences I've ever had. I'm keen to make the point that that I found reading the whole thing at times extremely challenging. Uh, it it makes my it made my teeth itch at points, but the payoff is so incredible in the final volume.
2: How did you read straight, or did you read one and then read other things?
1: Oh no, I've I read like um, uh, about four or five hundred pages a month and took a break because. I I could see one of the reasons why I I suspect people run aground is it's it's a hard thing to read anyway. It's quite challenging to read anyway, and you know, three hundred pages on one dreadful dinner party,
2: (laughs) for instance,
1: can 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 bring the spirits down a bit. But
2: I suppose that's Patrick Melrose territory, really,
1: isn't it? Oh, I love those books. Look, they're they're down there. Look, look, there's my Melrose. Is there?
2: I put me in mind a tiny bit of Anthony Pole, who I, thanks to you, now know how to pronounce.
1: Anthony Powell. Let's so walk, let's walk a, over. Here is sort of like, here is a dance, the music of time oh, by those Anthony Powell. Fabulous.
2: These are fabulous. <laughs> They're from the
1: nineties. Oh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and there look there's a and there's a guide uh, by Hilary Sperling to a dance the music of time. This book's absolutely brilliant. This basically tells you who all the characters are, so that you can look them up by character. When you meet someone in say volume <laughs> nine who you haven't met since volume five, it's quite useful to turn to that. It um, is. Um, it's a um, yes, game
2: of thrones with shabby over coates and communists really isn't
1: it <laughs> i totally i totally agree actually there is a definite the sort of pole saint albin thing what else can you see
2: um oh i see moomins oh these are lovely
1: so that's the last um sort of of just put out some really nice reproduction editions of the moomin books and these are the ones that puffin put out about 10 years ago the little hardbacks
2: um, and so these are these are books that you knew um and loved Yeah they were my favorite
1: f- favorite books when I was a kid particularly the last two Moomin Papa at Sea and Moomin Valley in November we've just done a backlisted about Moomin Valley in November uh, with Frank Cottrell Boyce, which was really brilliant to be able to go back and look at that, and I really like both of these books because they 're so melancholy. Moomin and Papa at sea mm-hmm. particularly is basically a midlife crisis, book. these are the things that I liked when I was ten. <laughs> I saw I was they were waiting for me. Did,
2: did you ever have any moments sort of in as a, a teenager or a young adult where you would seek out these very comforting childhood books and with a bit of you knowing oh i 'm sort of these are books from my past that I'm taking them into my present.
1: Yes, um, there's a brilliant example of that. I've, I've, um, there's a book called Ludo and the Star Horse by Mary Stewart, which I remember re- being on Jack and Ori when I was a kid, and I got it out of the library every week on the same ticket and read it and reread it, and I really loved it. It's about a boy in Switzerland. His horse escapes, and he chases into the storm after the horse, and he gets a bang on the head. And he dreams that he's in the Houses of the Zodiac. And in order to get home, he has to pass through each of the Houses of the Zodiac. And um, I didn't know what this book was called for years and years and years. And then I googled something like Jackanory, Houses of the Zodiac. And I found it. I found what the book was. And I bought it. Is it, it here? Uh, no, it's in my son's room. Oh. Because I read it to my son when he was about seven or eight. And uh, it was slightly embarrassing because I sort of, <laughs> sort of cried near the end. <laughs> so have I brought them Ooh, from the take... past into the present? Yes, absolutely. Having a child, of course, gives you a lovely excuse to be able to do that, not that you should need one. But, um, hey, have you read this? So this is Ridley Walker by Russell Hoban. And the reason, because you both live in Margate. We did live in Mar-Gate. And this book is set round... Uh, Margate, Broadstairs Whitstable, Canterbury and here is the little map at the front showing ah. you that, well, that in the future Margate and Ramsgate have broken off from the the Isle of Thanet and are now on a place called the Ram and here's Widder's Bell, Whitstable, Horny Boy Herne Bay Ramgut, there you are, Sandwich Sam's Itch uh, Cambry rather than Canterbury River Sour rather than River Stour. I I had never read this book before this year. It is absolutely mind-blowingly brilliant. It's all written. Can you see, Daisy, just read the beginning if you can.
2: On my naming day, when I come 12, I go in front spear and kilt a wild boar. He parbly bend the last wild pig on the bundle downs. Anyhow, there hadn't been none for a long time before him, nor I ain't looking to see none again.
1: You've got the gig. (laughs) (laughs) The audio book is yours.
2: It's a little bit, it reminds me of doing old English in my student times, but also um, Molesworth.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's such a brilliant, brilliant book. Ridley Walker by Russell Hoban, such a great book. Can I talk a bit about Penelope Fitzgerald? Yes,
2: please do. Okay, um, so Well I love it. There are quite a number of different but it's again, I think it's that completism where there'll be a number of books um by the same writer that a bit like the Anthony Poles, these Penelope Fitzgeralds, it's a seriousness, a lovely rainbow in the spine. They do look <laughs> lovely on a shelf.
1: Penelope Fitzgerald does not require the endorsement of me, Andy Miller. Right? She is a well established as one of the most interesting Skillful and witty novelists of the last 50 years but I hadn't read her I think I'd read the one you're looking at, at the moment the bookshop and I thought it was okay but I decided I would read them chronologically this year and I'm a great believer actually in reading an author's work chronologically because you begin to see more of their development and how they change as they go along and actually Penelope Fitzgerald starts as a sort of contemporary novelist, slightly bruckner certainly. Mm. And then she becomes this incredible historical novelist as she goes on. This book here, The Beginning of Spring, uh, which I read last month, oh, is my favourite book that I've read this year. Oh, and yeah. by, by extension, therefore, one of the best books that I've read uh, in the last ten years. It is set in Russia in 1913. And it is I about an, Engli- correct, an English an English printer. Uh, and his family. It is the most incredible recreation of a time and a place that you wouldn't necessarily know much about.
2: Introduction by Andrew Miller.
1: No relation. <laughs> yeah. And as everybody says, Hen- Philip Hensher says, how does she do it? How does she do the trick? And as I get older that's really what I want from books. Mm. You know, a lot of time I read things and I think okay well that's good you've done that or that's a good way of doing that or that's an interesting I see what you do. When I read Penelope Fitzgerald like when I was a child I can't see how she does it. And that's magical to me. That that really is magical. Even as a writer and an editor and somebody who reads a lot when I find a writer where I think what I don't I don't how are you you know when you get to the end of a book and you read the last page and the ending seems simultaneously unpredictable, unguessable and entirely inevitable. That is the mark of a great book. Where You, once you've re- you can't know how it would end, mm. but once you've read it, it feels the only possible ending that there could have been.
2: Huge thanks to Andy and to our listeners. You can find him on Twitter at IamMillIam with underscores between the words. I'm Daisy Buchanan and you've been listening to Your Booked. If you want to see some strong cover art, show me your shelfies, or tell me about your favourite Club style moment, you can find me on Instagram at TheDaisyBee or on Twitter at NotRollerGirl. Visit eggcars.com forward slash booked for a list of all the books mentioned on today's episode. If you'd like to get in touch about the show, email us at whybooked at gmail.com. Your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by AgCast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate us and leave a review. We love hearing what you think and it helps other people find the podcast. Join me next time for more spine-chilling moments and acts of shelf abuse.